Welcome to Oncopharm. I'm your host, John Bazaar. I'm an associate professor of pharmacy practice here at the supporting sponsor of Oncopharm, the Bill Gatton College of Pharmacy here at East Tennessee State University. I am recording this uh, fairly early first thing in the morning on December 12th because I have five hours of meeting coming up after this, the life of an academic. So, uh, and I know it's a busy time of year. You're back from ASH, you're back from ASHP's mid-year, you got holiday parties for work, holiday parties for friends, you got all kinds of stuff to do. So let's get right through it. We're going to run through uh, the hashtag ASH19 abstract. So uh, I have, I think it's seven abstracts that I'm going to go through. Um, uh, And for brevity's sake, I'm just going to get right to it. The first one I'm going to talk about is LBA1, so late late breaking abstract one and perhaps the most uh, consequential that came out of ASH um, in, you know, many people are saying that. Um, so this is a randomized phase three trial of blenitumumab versus chemo as post-reinduction therapy for high and intermediate risk uh, BALL in kids and adult and young adolescents, or adolescents and young adults. So, so peds and AYA who relapse, the reinduction therapy, uh, with blenitumab versus chemo, phase three study. So the way this actually worked is these high-risk or intermediate-risk kids, young adults and adolescents who relapsed, got reinduction with uh, block one of the UK ALLR3 regimen, which is a fairly standard ALL regimen. It's, it's, it's dexamethasone, mitoxantrone, vincristine, pecosparaginase, and IT-methotrexate. And then they were randomized to either uh, two cycles of blenitumab or two more cycles of chemo blocks two and three of that uh, UK ALLR3. And then they would go on to transplant because allotransplant is the treatment of choice for folks, uh, for these kids and adults who relapse with ALL. So a couple things, five, five uh, key endpoints. The first, which was the primary endpoint, uh, disease-free survival, uh, 41% with chemo versus 59%. Uh, with blenitumab, which was uh, barely statistically significant. Overall survival, 59% versus 79%. So almost a 20% improvement in both disease-free survival and overall survival. And the overall survival endpoint was statistically significant. Now, this is what catches your eye. So we know that minimum residual disease, MRD, is very, very prognostic in ALL. So for those who had minimal residual disease after that first block of chemo, the number or the percentage of folks of patients who had uh, undetectable MRD uh, was 21% with chemo versus 79% with blenitumab, which is a huge difference. Uh, The rates of febrile neutropenia, infection, sepsis, mucositis were all higher with chemo compared to blenitumab, and the blenitumab arm had the toxicities you would expect with regards to cytokine release syndrome and neurotoxicity, etc. And then, because what we believe is going to get these people cured is going to be going on to receive stem cell transplant. So 45% of those who got chemo went on to stem cell transplant. 73%, almost twice as many with blenitumab went on to transplant in pediatrics, adolescents, young adults. So most people are saying this is practice changing. Uh, blenitumab is FDA approved already. So some uh, this is something that could be incorporated uh, today in practice. I am not a pediatric uh, oncopharm guy. I uh, don't know a ton about ALL uh, and PEDS especially, uh, being so far removed from uh, my PEDS hemonc rotation. So I pass that information along for you. That's late breaking abstract one. The next abstract to talk about is 2640. 
Venetoclax dosing in combination with antifungal agents. Real world experience in patients with AML. This is right up our alley for oncology pharmacists. This comes to us from uh, Caitlin Rausch, uh, PharmD at the University of Texas MD Anderson. Now, I like getting this real world experience data from people who have lots of, ex lots of experience with these drugs because uh, if there's one thing that came out of uh, just following Ash19 on Twitter, it's that venetoclax is going to be everywhere. It's going to be in everything in hematologic malignancies. And of course, these patients with hematologic malignancies uh, take a lot of azole antifungals and there are drug interactions. And so what are the consequences of those drug interactions besides, in theory, knowing that they interact and in theory, knowing from PK data roughly what percentage we should dose reduce. So it's, it's excellent to have this. And we had a patient some years ago uh, who had uh, aspergillus, was on voriconazole, and uh, was going to start venetoclax as recommended by a tertiary center, called a friend who had some experience um, uh, working with these patients and asked around what, what do they do here where they have a high volume use of venetoclax with azelonic fungals, um, basically to convince a physician uh, not to do what that physician wanted to do. That's either here nor there. So um, this is 121 patients with newly diagnosed AML, uh, treated with venetoclax and hypomethylene agents like azacitidine from uh, November of 2014 to 2019, retrospectively reviewed. And basically what they did is they uh, assigned patients um, on venetoclax to either being on 400, mil 400 milligram equivalents of venetoclax or greater. Now, if you're on venetoclax 100, with a strong 3 4 inhibitor, and that was postconazole or voriconazole, that was considered 400 milligram equivalents of venetoclax. Uh, venetoclax 200 with isabuconazole or fluconazole, which are moderate 3 and 4 inhibitors, were considered 400, milligra 400 milligram equivalents. And if you're on venetoclax 400 and not on a nasal inhibitor, that was um, a 400, mil 400 equivalent. So right away in the methods from this, you get an idea of what the expected dose reduction should be based on people who use these drugs all the time at MD Anderson. So on Vori or postconazole, venetoclax dose appears to be 100 based on how they designed the study. For fluke and isabuconazole, venetoclax dose should be 200. So what we're looking at here uh, are um, basically the tolerability. So when looking at this, the duration of neutropenia, and that's getting to an ANC of less than 1,000, was five days longer in patients receiving an azole compared to those who were not, although time to ANC above 500 was not different. Um, time to platelet above, fit, above uh, 50 was also longer in patients receiving venetoclax 400 equivalent with an azole, as well as time to platelet above 100. So that's venetoclax 400 equivalent with an azole. So even if you've dose reduced, there does appear to be a slightly longer period of, of count recovery with regards to platelets um, at least platelets to, uh, uh, yeah, with platelets and with ANC above 1,000. And those receiving more than 400 milligram, 400 milligram equivalents of venetoclax had higher rates numerically, not statistically significant, but higher rates numerically of febrile neutropenia, 46 versus 68%, infections, 35 versus 50%. So even with dose reduction, that's the takeaway, even with appropriate dose reduction with venetoclax and, say, voriconazole, there is added myelosuppression. So is it possible to get like 75 milligrams of metoclax? I don't think so. So uh, that is something that we have to consider when using these drugs going forward. Okay, next abstract. Uh, 2639, uh, multi-center retrospective evaluation of high-dose cytarabine-based induction regimens. And this is FLAG and everybody. Two patients had CLAG, uh, cladribine, 
uh, high dose ARC. Uh, the others got flag. So basically, flag versus CPX351 induction in patients with secondary AML. What's really great about this, there are 14 authors on this study, 11 are PharmDs, three have MDS. And these are, this is a multi-center retrospective study looking back at these folks with secondary AML and looking at, all right, so who got FLAG or CLAG and who got CPX351 and how'd they do? And this comes to us from the wonderful pharmacist at uh, University of Michigan, MD Anderson, Barnes Jewish in St. Louis, UNC in Chapel Hill, uh, Huntsman Cancer Center in Salt Lake City, uh, Rochester, uh, Simon Cancer Center in IU, uh, where I did a rotation as a student, Barnes Jewish in St. Louis, which I've already said, uh, and I think that's it. So looking at this, um, the uh, the cost, and and this is pretty close from what I know. The cost they cite in the abstract is CPX three fifty one is one hundred fifty thousand dollars for induction. That's a heck of a pharmacist salary right there. Okay, so most of these folks, seventy three came from Michigan, uh, twenty three from Indiana, Anderson, twenty two from Orange Juice in St. Louis. 21 from UNC, and then less than 10 for these other centers, right? So um, we end up with 75 on a high dac based regimen, 94 with CPX351, and essentially uh, the primary endpoint is uh, a non-inferiority margin for complete response rate or complete response with incomplete hematologic recovery. So very much a surrogate marker endpoint for non-inferiority. What these authors are trying to basically show is that you don't necessarily have to do three... Uh, CPX351, you can do a flag regimen and get patients into remission at a similar rate, which is what we see here. Um, the rates of complete remission or complete remission with incomplete hematologic uh, recovery are basically 63% with HIDAC-based regimens versus 48% with, with uh, CPX. If you just look at straight complete response, it's 49% favoring flag versus 42% uh, with CPX. Now, what we do see that's concerning, 30-day mortality was 1.3% with chemo, uh, with flag, versus 8.5% uh, with uh, CPX351. And again, this is in a real-world use. Uh, that p-value is 0 0.039, um, with more 30-day mortality with CPX351, uh, as well as more infections as well. 56% versus 75%, again, more infections with the C CPX arm. Uh, time to A and C in platelet recovery. We're also much longer, 18 days versus 36 days. Uh, so a lot longer time to neutrophil count recovery with CPX351. And in that study that basically got three uh, CPX351 uh, compared to 7 plus 3 followed by 5 plus 2 consolidation, a bit of an inferior uh, control arm to say the least, uh, what we saw there was the overall survival benefit with CPX351 and a whole lot longer time to count recovery, but not higher rates of infection, which didn't quite make sense to me. So what we see here is an alignment of longer time to count recovery and a higher risk of infectious complications, which intuitively goes hand in hand. And of course, also longer time to platelet recovery, uh, 23 days versus 38 days. Again, uh, quicker count recovery with flag-based regimen. So kudos to these folks for doing this study. Uh, it's a needed study. Can't wait to see it published. Moving on now to myeloma. A lot of stuff came out about myeloma at this conference. I am going to talk about, I think, three or four of these. So the first one is LBA6, carfilzomib, dexamethasone, and daratumab versus carfilzomib dex without the dara for treatment of relapsed refractory um, multiple myeloma. This is a randomized open-label phase three study. This is CANDOR, C-A-N-D-O-R. This is the CANDOR study. 
<coughs> pardon me. So, um, you know, they randomized two to one. We ended up with uh, 450-ish patients uh, in this study. Uh, Carfilzomib was given uh, on the two twice per week, so days one, day two, days eight, nine, 15, 16, along with, uh, you know, kind of standard doses of, of dex and daratumab for relapsed refractory patients. And what we see here is um, a st statistically significant improvement in uh, progression-free survival, uh, hazard ratio of 0.63, so, you know, about 37% uh, improvement in the risk of progression-free survival, favoring daratumab uh, with carfilzomib and uh, um, yeah, just carfilzomib and, and dex. So there is no imbit in this regimen. I think the median, most of these folks had one to three prior lines of treatment. So what we see here is now carfilzomib and dex and dara in uh, the relapse refractory setting. And of course we know about Cassiopeia, uh, the, the big study with daratumab up front. So now the question is, can we incorporate carfilzomib and ibid, dex, and daratumab up front in these patients? So this brings us to abstract 862. Weekly carfilzomib, linalidomide, dexmedazone, and daratumab, or uh, W, <laughs> the way we abbreviate these things has to just completely drive people outside of oncology crazy. This is abbreviated WKRD-D, or CARDI-D is I think what we should call this. Um, so, in the United States, what we say VRD, which is Velcade, uh, Revlimid, and Lodose Dex. Um, again, Velcade is Bortezomib, Revlimid is Lenalidomide, and Dexmedazone is, is often our standard of care upfront induction regimen for multiple myeloma. And uh, the abstract states that about 25% of these patients will have MRD negativity. So, you can't find any of those cytogenetic or chromosomal abnormalities uh, after your cycles. So this was looking at that, and what they're able to show early on is that 83% were able to receive MRD negativity. Now, it's only looking at 18 patients so far who are, who are far enough in this with this CARDI-D upfront regimen. So this brings me to abstract 860, which I want to talk about uh, because the primary author is Luciana Costa, who I worked with uh, at MUSC during my uh, uh, PGY2 oncology farm here. So he worked there for, for a minute. He's now at UAB. So this is what I think. It's not ready for prime time yet, but this is where I think we may be going with myeloma. Again, as, as someone who, who sees a fair amount of myeloma but would not consider myself a myeloma expert. So the way this worked is you got daratumab, carfilzomib, uh, lilidomide, and dex uh, up front, right? So this CARDI-D regimen, uh, weekly carfilzomib, and then based on, and then they went on to autotransplant, and then based on MRD negativity, they either got... Uh, more uh, CAR-DD or not. And so what you're looking at, rates of MRD negativity after induction um, are something like 34%, then after transplant go up to 70%, and then uh, after post-transplant therapy go up to 80%. And the hope is that that MRD negativity will lead to um, durable, long-lasting remissions. But that's where I think we may be going here with myeloma treatment is this uh, CAR-DD Carfilzomib, uh, dexmedazone, uh, lilidomide, and daratumab up front, a quadruple regimen, which is going to cost a lot of money. Man, it's a lot of money. Um, but even in this regimen, there's still a role for autotransplant. Uh, that's still part of the protocol. Again, this is uh, probably too early for prime time, but carfilzomib, lilidomide, 
Dexter, all FDA approved, so something you very well might be seen uh, prescribed by oncologist in clinic. And so uh, you can, if you can't find that published anywhere, you can find uh, upline, um, again, early on, not ready for prime time, um, use of those drugs together uh, in, the, in, the, in the early safety results and tolerability uh, published in ASH. This is, again, abstract 860. All right, the last one I'll talk about, and I know there are debates in the myeloma community, is there still a role for autotransplant? Are we gonna have autotransplant go away? I think there's always gonna be a role for autotransplant because it's gonna be cheaper in the long run. Um, it's gonna be uh, you know, a market inefficiency as high-dose Nuflin. So this is from uh, Karen Suisse, or Swice, uh, who's a pharmacist at UIC. And this is, this is cool, this is development of real-time PK testing to allow for targeted melphalan dosing in myeloma patients undergoing autotransplant. So this is what we did, for example, and what a lot of folks do with busulfan dosing for uh, conditioning regimens where you measure busulfan serum concentrations. Um, you know, so, so for those of you who don't know, a lot of the busulfan-based regimens, you'll get like four days of busulfan, and it's got some erratic absorption and a lot of uh, a high interpatient variability. So to decrease that, you measure busulfan levels for the first day. We'd send it out to the University of Washington. They'd send it back and tell us how to change the dosing of busulfan on like days three and four to get a target AUC. Because if you had a lower total exposure, you had a risk of graft failure. You couldn't actually get your graft to engraft. And if you had a really high exposure of busulfan, you end up with a higher risk of venoclusive disease, or now called sinusoidal obstructive syndrome. So this is doing the same thing with melphalan, essentially. And I wasn't aware of the interpatient var variability uh, with melphalan, uh, which can be up to tenfold, uh, as described in in their uh, their um, their background. So essentially, they, they drew blood for these folks receiving uh, melphalan, and this is a two-day regimen. It's only two days of, of melphalan, right? So it's either 140 milligrams per meter squared per regimen. So like 70 milligrams per meter squared on day minus two, and then 70 milligrams per meter squared on day minus one, or 100 and 100, right? Uh, so there are 20 patients. Uh, 18 of them uh, got 200 milligrams per meter squared for their um, consolidation, and then 140 for two. And uh, they drew blood uh, at 10 time points uh, on uh, day minus two, so the first day of auto of consolidation chemo. And then within five minutes, take it to be analyzed, uh, and then they're able to uh, adjust the dose for day minus two. So just looking at the first five patients, uh, they were able to see that uh, the dosing, or the AUC on day one, correlated with the AUC dosing in day two. And actually, the R, the R squared number there was 0.8. So what that means is that uh, the dose was uh, similar, you know, you could correlate like 80% of the time, so very high uh, reliability that the AUC you measured on day one would be the AUC you would measure on uh, day, or day minus two, that you measure on day minus two would be the same AUC you get on day minus one. In other words, you could predict that the interpatient variability from patient A, that they got their first dose of melphalan would be the same on their second dose of melphalan. Okay, so after they did that, uh, they were able to uh, start to adjust their doses on day minus two. Uh, so the median single day AUC on day minus two was seven and a half, and that ranged from five to almost 12. So that is, um, you know, you're talking about almost a doubling for some of these folks if you look at just the, the upper and lower quartiles. So and it's not even the range, but just uh, if you look at the interquartile range, you're going from 5.5 .5 
to 10.2. So that's almost a, a, a doubling of exposure, which means you know someone who thinks they're getting 200 milligrams per square of melphalan uh, is getting well over 350 milligrams per square of melphalan. Of course, that's going to have potential uh, impact on efficacy and toxicity. So what they what they saw is that the dose change went from a decrease of 124 milligrams to an increase of 206 milligrams to achieve the same target AUC. So the two-day range was from 133 to 308 milligrams per meter squared. So really, really interesting stuff uh, coming out of UIC. Uh, we will have to, of course, see long-term follow-up and see uh, how those results compare maybe to historical controls with regards to efficacy and toxicity, uh, but something that may be coming down the road. Who knows if anybody else could do this because you, you can't send this out with a, with a two-day conditioning regimen. So that's what I have as far as the ASH updates. Uh, the New England Journal of Medicine published a whole bunch of uh, some fascinating stuff looks like uh, that, that just came in the email inbox last night that we'll get to at some point. There's always stuff to talk about here. So I hope that you have a very, very merry uh, second, third week of December. And until I talk to you again, remember, doses matter. Mm-hmm.